Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing on Team Human today, art activist Steve Lambert. If I had walked around on a soapbox or just went up to people on the street and said, can I talk to you about capitalism, they would walk away. So they're drawn because it's a style that they find familiar and comforting that they like. Lambert will be sharing the secret to making art that restores the public conversation by reclaiming public space. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. This is Team Human. So as our presidential election come American Idol contest careens toward its conclusion, I'm coming to realize that what passes for public engagement these days is actually better understood as our collective relationship with the screen. In other words, the the whole ordeal is no longer really about policy, about immigrants or economics or terrorism, except insofar as they are reflected on our TV screens or social media feeds. In other words, no one's actually bothered by Mexican immigrants or acts of terror in major Western cities. We just don't like seeing this stuff on television. And I'm not really sure exactly where the crossover took place. It was, for me, maybe back in the early CNN era, where everybody was talking about desensitization. Remember, it's like, oh, if you're going to see this war and these starving children on television, but there's nothing you can do about it, then you're going to 
experience a kind of helplessness and depression. And ultimately, you'll be desensitized because the thing that would have normally stimulated you to act or, oh, there's a baby starving, I want to pick him up. You can't pick him up because he's on TV, so that kind of shuts down slowly but surely, and you get really apathetic and then really helpless. But then, to some extent, reality television started to give people this feeling like they could influence what was happening on the screens. Like, you get to vote for who's kicked out of the Big Brother house. So it's like some weird Stanley Milgram experiment. But it, now at least we're, you know, we're, we're partly in charge or, uh, you know, American Idol. You know, so now that's the people's choice. And even though I had a student who did that program for the cell phone thing, it turns out it's not even real. You know, it's a totally fake. They, they look at the numbers. They don't use it. It's, it's a fake, fake, fake voting program. But anyway, the idea that, oh, we're voting, so we're changing. I could get that little blonde girl to be stay on next week instead of that, you know, ucky, yuck one from that race I don't like or whatever it is. I'm going to have, you know, some uh, influence on what's happening on the screen. It's like we wanted to hack that a little bit. I remember when People magazine used to have this vote where the people could vote for who's the sexiest man of the year, sexiest woman of the year. And Howard Stern started this campaign to get Hank the Angry Dwarf to be the sexiest man of the year. And he had so many listeners and they were pushing it so hard. They got him like to number two or to number one and to the point where People magazine just had to eliminate that. You know, we're just not we're just not going to pay attention to that. But the sense of revolt and satisfaction that we hate People magazine, we hate what they represent, we know we can never be as sexy as these rich people, this whole friggin' institution doesn't care about us, but now we're in a kind of television age, a kind of vote back and vote our conscience thing, we can make the dwarf the sexiest person in America. And that is what I was reminded of as I've watched Donald Trump's ascent in this campaign, that he's the Hank the Angry Dwarf. I can make something happen on that TV. I can influence what I see. I'm not going to get one of those suits or this weird Democrat lady with the Lincoln bedroom and the husband. I'm not going to get this same old I'm going to change the story. And the only way I can really know if I've impacted what's on that screen is if I can get something ridiculous on there. In other words, it's got to look like Bozo or something you know, in the basic rules of interactivity, if it still looks like another one of the same old things, then how do I know I did that? If we get Donald Trump in that screen, we've done that. We've changed the screen. You know, so I can I can influence. I don't care about the world. I can influence the screen, the screen, you know, and this is interactivity at its most base, at its most immediate. We try to vote for what we want to see changed in there, you know, and he's going to build the wall or he's going to do the thing. We're going to see this in TV. You're going to get to see stuff, the show that you want, the user-generated content that this age was supposed to be about. You know, and the, moreover, the, the browser and the smartphone screen is even more of a feedback loop. It's subtle in a way, as any listener of this show would know, you know, your, your Google search is going to be different than your neighbor's Google search, different than your wife's or your friend's, because Google knows who you are, and they're trying to feed back to you the picture of the world that is going to get you to click on the most stuff. 
And your Facebook feed is not a real news feed. Your Facebook feed is a reflection of what you click on. So you do affect what you see on that thing. The world that Facebook presents to you is the world that you project to it. Click on food, you're going to get food. You click on terror, you're going to get that. Don't want to see any bad things? Just click on beautiful gadgets all day long. We get the world we want, but real reality is diverging from that reality on the screen. You know, the real world has in some ways nothing to do with that. Getting Hank the Angry Dwarf on people, getting Donald Trump into the presidential election has nothing to do with the human beings who are winning and losing and struggling and failing against whatever institutional forces are actually running these media and these places. You know, the real world, the the meat space is the one where it's actually happening, you know, and this is where Team Human works and lives. And I think this is where we have the home field advantage. This is where we can actually have an effect. You can have a fake effect on a synthetic reality on a screen, or you can get off that screen for a minute and have an actual effect in the real world. It's where our thoughts and ideas and actions aren't filtered through an advertising-based corporate broadcast media or a surveillance-based social media. A choice that a person makes in public, in the real world, begins to then change the way we make choices in the virtual landscapes of television, of social media, or even electoral politics. You know, so yes, there's a a, a who do you want to see on the TV for the next four years factor that affects our elections. And that is big. But it's more our role as it's more our role as program directors that I'm interested in. People wanting to have impact on the news, on their social media feeds. You know, which candidate will let us believe that reality is TV and everything that you read on social media is, well, true? It's true. Believe me. I saw it on Twitter. I saw, just, on, just Google it. Just Google it. And it's there. You know, but when you take that conversation into the real world, you know, when you establish a foothold in a public space, you know, such choices are no longer relegated uh, to the American idol. You know, then they become not just actionable, but effective, but real. You know, and I would so much rather have the opportunity to make a real decision in the real world than a momentous decision in that animated fantasy. We're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens and online at teamhuman.fm. I'm Andy Bickelmaw, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Marina Gorbis, and I'm on Team Human. I'm DC Vito, and I'm on Team Human. So, Steve Lambert, professor, art activist... When you put a big sign, a physical marquee made of lights and metal, a sign that reads, capitalism works for me, true, false, 
and a set of a, a big red and a green button for someone to, you know, make their choice, and you stick it in a single town square somewhere. What's better about that than a web survey that can reach millions of people? There's a different kind of interaction that happens in person, right? And I think people take it seriously in a way that they wouldn't online. Because you could have a Twitter poll, right, that says capitalism works for me, true or false, and send it to all your friends. You could do, we could do it right now, right? But seeing that in the form of a feed and among all the other things that you are getting on a computer or a device, right, you're not going to take that question seriously. And I've found that even in person, people don't really reckon with it often until just they come up to the podium and they're about to press the button. And then I'll say, in your life, is this true or false? And they're like, me, my life, right? <laughs> and then they hesitate, right? And I'll say, have you thought about this? And they're like, well, yeah, I was thinking this or this, you know. And I also get to have a conversation with them. So whatever they're leaning towards, I usually try to argue the other way, just so they're thinking through what they're saying. And there's a, a person, you know, like all the, the other information I'm giving them visually by my body being in front of them that affects how they read that situation and how they think about it. Yeah, because um, for listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, of course, they're going to immediately visit Steve and uh, go to your website. And if you don't have that link handy, just come to teamhuman.fm and you'll link right to his work either there or at the uh, Center for Art and Activism. A lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it in the last five or ten years of your work is characterized by making these real things, these giant, like, signs. They look like they're out of, like, the 1950s kind of soda fountain, uh, not even the, the, the neon era, but, like, light bulbs in these big metal... You know, remember those old signs, people, that were just light bulbs in, in metal cans? Like They're called channel letters. Channel letters. So it's letters. like a channel of metal, and then you have lights inside. Sometimes neon, I use, you know, regular bulbs. But, yeah, it's like a, th it's a technology that no one uses. And I've actually, it's very difficult to make because you still have to track down the few places that make that stuff. But, yeah, it's it's an old aesthetic. And... The reason I use that is because people like it before they know what it says. They're, I'm like kind of manipulating their sense of nostalgia, right? It's interesting. In a way, it's like, you know, like uh, some of the really effective satirical cartoons or something. They're done in a style that reminds you of, oh, right, I love those kind of cartoons. And then they're like, you know, totally uh, radical. So you make these giant signs or things, you cart them into towns like it to friggin Cleveland or whatever and yep. to just a place and then people are supposed to interact with them in a live way yeah and they know what to do right so they're drawn because it's a sign that it's a style that they find familiar and comforting and that they like then it's they read what it says and it says capitalism works for me and there's a scoreboard right and this podium so they know how a scoreboard works and they know how voting works and so I have like these familiar structures with this topic that is like you don't talk about in public. Because if I had walked around on a soapbox or just went up to people on the street and said, can I talk to you about capitalism? They would walk away. Right. They don't want people don't want to engage in that conversation with a stranger because you have no idea where it's going to go. 
the thing I've said a lot, it's like, it's like walking up to somebody and saying, can I talk to you about Jesus? Back off, right? So um, the voting, the scoreboard, there's a few things that happen. You were talking about the screen thing, right? They know if they press the button, the number changes, right? So no matter what I think or other people think, the button they press counts, literally counts, right? But most people don't want to choose true or false. And they're like, where's the third button? I want, or they want 10 buttons and they want like kind of true, but kind of false. But there's, they have to pick one or the other, which kind of compels them to speak Mm because they want to explain, I'm hitting false, but you should know this, right? Or I'm hitting true, but I'm in a union. And so it's true because I'm in a union. I don't want you to think I'm one of them, right? Uh (laughs) So... Either way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only being able to choose true or false sort of forces us into a conversation. I was going to ask you about the sort of false binary of it, but that's intentional. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't give them a meter. Like, capitalism works for me 40%, you know, Yeah, they would pick six and walk away. But if (laughs) if, if they have to hit true or false, then then they're like, ah, you know, okay, I'm hitting this, and then explain. And it's also, it's not... uh, it's not abstract because you're not saying capitalism works, yes or no. You're saying capitalism yeah. works for me. Yeah, it's very specific, which I've said is from years of therapy, right? If I say <laughs> this makes me feel this, right, then I can, we can have a conversation. If I'm like, you are horrible, then <laughs> we get into a fight. So if I ask people, does capitalism work, we're going to get into a fight, right? But if I say, does it work for you, then we're talking about you and your life. And there's a lot of ways I can't argue, right? So if some white-haired old guy says, I got a job, I went to college, I got out of college, I got a job, I worked hard, and now I'm retired, and yeah, it worked. I, I, there's nothing I can argue with there. So then from there, we can talk, right? And I can say, well, that's great that it worked for you. But as you can see, there are 327 people that it didn't work for. Then we can go from there, right? right. That part is also undeniable. 327 people did press false. So... Whether or not, even though it worked for him, he's got to sort of talk about this other, there's usually, you know, around half the people that it doesn't work for. So, Is that how it usually comes out? It's very most? close in most places. In Times Square, we, we did it in Times Square for like five days and capitalism lost in Times Square. But it's, it's <laughs> always by, whether it wins or loses, usually by a very narrow margin. And the people that vote yes, they're not like all rich people. It's not the 1% voting yes. There, there are some. There are some very rich people. It's funny that yes, the yes button has been broken because the yes people hit it much harder. Really? Yes. So yeah, there are people Damn that are rich. that are yeah uh, emphatic and often wealthy. Um, you can create a sort of a demographic of a certain type. I like profiling people and messing with them. <laughs> but um, there are people that hit yes in this like aspirational way. And they usually hit it before I can talk them through it and say, no, no, I mean now. You well, it's know? interesting. I mean, you're you're originally what we'd call, at least from my perspective, a digital guy. You know, you were a guy who learned the, these technologies before most people knew them. And then you were kind of digital artist. You were at iBeam and a mm-hmm. fellow there. And then, not that you, not, I was going to say you took a left turn, but I don't even mean leftist. Then you kind of... It, got really uh, enamored of the physical, of the real, you know, of not doing net art and going to Ars Electronica with, you know, weird things there, but of uh, 
invading public space, reclaiming public space in a certain way for a deeper conversation than usually happens there. That's where I started. I started on the street. So I was in San Francisco and did what a friend calls non-permissional painting. Um, I didn't do graffiti, right? Like, because I knew graffiti would be read as vandalism or as, you know, it could be categorized and dismissed. So what I would do is do these very meticulous, like, hand-painted messages on the street that could be confused for a sign. And uh, the reason I did that is because I realized that if I put something in the street, you know, well, say I, I got a gallery show, right? As an artist, that's what you want. It's very successful. I'm showing in a gallery this Saturday. If I could get, you know, a hundred of my friends to show up, that would be a success. If I put my piece on the street, I can get a hundred people in like 30 minutes. And so I decided to go where people were. Because that's ultimately what I wanted out of art was to communicate with people, right? And then the digital is just another tool. Yeah. So I grew up kind of unafraid of technology. I had an Apple IIe when I was like a kid. My parents thought it would be good. So um, I wasn't afraid of technology, but then I got into punk rock and I was like, computers are stupid. So I had this sort of Luddite period. And then I came back to it when those tools were sort of undeniably powerful. Right. And it's like, all right, well, I want to communicate with people. Here is another way that will work. Assuming most Team Human listeners are people who uh, are are hoping to engage with the world in this way. I mean, what's your legacy? I know you have students at 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 SUNY Purchase and your uh, digital arts program there. I mean, what what's your advice to us, to, to those of us who, you know, We may not be artists and capable of making whole big things, but we want to begin engaging with people differently without getting hit. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possible. Yeah. So the the thing I would say is start from the end, right? Start where think about the world that you want and the kinds of interactions that you want, and think in terms of like way beyond what's possible, what you think is possible, right? So. When we work with activists at the Center for Artistic Activism, a lot of them will say, oh, you know, it would be great. What, what is success? Success would be passing HB 278, this House bill that would allow such and such, right? And we're like, okay, great. What if you did that? And they're like, oh, wow, we, we could even do that? You know, like their <laughs> bar of success is so low. So then we say, yeah. Uh, and they'll say, well, then, you know, if we pass the law, we would want to enforce it. Like, okay, you passed it, you enforced it. What do you want after that? Like, oh, wow, okay. Well, maybe we'd want new politicians. Okay, you got new politicians. What do you want after that? And just keep going, right? To the point where they actually start to shut down and they're like, I don't know. I, you know, like, no, no, no. What do you want? Because your, your mind will start to protect yourself from your dreams, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's really like, it it's actually uh, takes discipline to imagine these sort of utopic dreams of the future. But once you have access to them, you realize what's motivating you. And that is what will motivate other people. Because in the end, nobody cares about HB 276. They care about living in the world where people are at ease and comfortable and they're not, you know, overly worked and they have time for their kids and they can hang out outside, you know, and the the environment is uh, beautiful and, you know, full of life. So that's something that motivates almost everyone, and then you say, and our first step is passing HB 270-whatever, right? 
So tapping into that, I think, is really key because it changes the way that you talk to everyone. You don't have to tell them your crazy fantasy, right? Because then you sound a little off. But at least knowing it for yourself so that you know what what you're working towards. I mean, the word utopia shows up in your work mm-hmm. in a number of places. I mean, usually when I hear the word utopia, it's somebody criticizing what I'm saying. Oh, well, yeah. that's utopia. Either it's utopianism or it's boomer nostalgia. And either one of them is apparently supposed to immediately disqualify whatever I'm saying. Utopianism is bad, right? We're not allowed to do that. Yeah, we give a lot of uh, respect and credit to people who discredit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's like you're seen as this great, it's a great (laughs) gift to be able to debunk or or, um, destroy and say, oh, this isn't possible, right? Like you're a realist and we're getting back to what's real. If you're an artist, you have to shove that aside every once in a while. And if it gets too involved in your process, it's crippling. I mean, that's what we need. We have plenty of critics in the world telling us how everything is not going to work and how the world's going to end in ever, whatever many years, and they all fight over how bad it is. It's crowded right? trade, as they say. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. So rather, the world needs more visions and more different kinds of visions, right? And so anyone that is dismissive, I think, of utopian ideas, just let them go, you know, and keep working. Yeah, because, I mean, we're trying to, you know, turn Team Human not just into a podcast but into a site that has links to things that people can do and experts and ideas. And so yeah. I'm sure, you know, for every uh, for every would-be activist uh, who's listening to this, there's three would-be artists, you know, mm-hmm. whether they're, you know, I mean, I get the, we get the emails. They're DJs and musicians and, uh, uh, gosh, people who want to uh, start farmer's markets. And, or they're uh, great dancers or they love to cook. And th- right. this is the thing that happens with activism is they think, oh, you know, this is the serious work, and if we don't do this, like, these kids are going to die. Right. right? And it, and it, <laughs> there you go. And That's it. it. Re- you raise the stakes to the point where you can take no risks. And activism gets really conservative, and we just repeat these old patterns, right? Because it worked that one time in 1964, so maybe if we do it again, but that's not how it works. It takes creativity. It takes innovation. The, but it's also what causes burnout in activists and, like, mm. how many burned out, bitter activists do you know? We don't need any more, right? That, that's also a crowded field. So um, so what part of how that happens is they start separating their creativity and their work. So it's like, all right, five days a week, I'm in this organization, I'm trying to push this issue forward and pass HB 270, whatever. But finally, on the weekend, I get to do my DJ thing, right? And your life becomes bifurcated where you start to resent the work that you're supposed to be doing that helps people and and tr- more escapism on the weekend with the creative work. And instead, what we're, we talk about at the center is bringing those two things together because that's what it takes to be a whole human being and not an activism machine that has some time off. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that's this is the, precisely the struggle that I've been experiencing lately. You know, I spent the last decade and a half justifying my previous work with scholarship and research. Yeah, yeah. I did my, my book on, here's a valid critique of corporate capitalism. Here's the numbers that show the digital economy is not working in favor of people. And here's this and there's that. And it's like, uh, and then finally, the facts don't really matter to anybody as yeah. electoral politics will show. Who cares? Yeah. You're right. I'm right. I'm right. 
I'm yeah. right. Great. Well, even if yeah. you are right, people will ignore those facts. Right. right. Like try un- uh, arguing with your uncle at Thanksgiving about what's right, you know, or like what actually happened and see where it gets you. Use the truth and see where it gets you. Um, but this is an argument for the arts, right? Right. Like, we, we think of um, politics as being incredibly rational. And if I take these arguments and I put them together and, you know, as you probably do, have done in many books, right, we get to the end of the book and there's no other conclusion. This is the right way. And if we just repeat what we do in the book or give people the book, right, whether it's the Communist Manifesto right. or the Bible, and say, if you just read this book, you will understand the truth. Right. Where has that gotten us? Right. And then they don't understand. And we go, oh, well, they must be illiterate. Then. Yeah, yeah. Illiterate. And then we, we just dismiss educate them all. the people that were trying to <laughs> get involved, right? Right. And, and write them all off as idiots. Or the arts is not about, like, just the truth. We need the truth, right? We ha- it has to be grounded in something real. I'm not saying we create fantasy worlds. But the arts is the world of affect and emotion. And that's really what's motivating people, right? Whether they're Trump supporters and, and their, their anger has been stirred up or the dreams of, like, Obama uh, at any point, right? <laughs> um, those are not rational. Like, the reason that you feel disdain for Trump or like Trump is it's not I mean you can you can argue why it's true but in the end it's a gut feeling and those kinds of feelings are what comes out in theater what what, it's the indescribable thing when you're looking at a painting about like why do you feel this way you can't describe it because it's not rational it's affective and emotional and so when we bring the sort of truth and the uh the the structure of activism with that emotional, affective experience of art, that's when it actually becomes really effective. Right. And, you know, thinking back on something like Occupy, that the, it was the the Alan Capra-like happening of Occupy, which really was what captivated people almost more than the education on how the economy was working or not. Yeah, it's not like uh, people went down there because they're like, you know what I would like is a university course on economics, but I just want to sit outside. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that's not that's not the motivation. No. You know, they're motivated by a dream again. Right. And so so we, we we have to bring these together for activism to be effective. And that's what like I've spent the last whatever, eight, nine, maybe 10 years studying is how activism and art fit together and the strengths of art and and art has plenty of weaknesses too um but but figuring out how they can work together really effectively and see it work to put it to to the test and see it work you know has been uh a, i don't know i feel really lucky to have been able to do that and then also share those things with activists around the world well we feel lucky that you <laughs> joined team human and, <laughs> and and shared it with us you know so thank you Thanks for joining Team Human. You're welcome. I am glad to be here. As you know, like, I'm of a certain age. (laughs) Usually you say that when you're older, but I'm slightly younger, right? Where I, your books, your early books were really influential. And and like Steve Duncombe, who I work with now also, like, had written a few books by the time I came across them. So there was a lot of, like, uh, uh, groundwork and foundation that was laid that I could kind of combine and build on. And so I'm glad to be here in that way. Well, thank you. I've, I've learned a lot from you too, you know, and, and sometimes it takes the, the next generation to process and then bring things to a new level. So now that you've fed that back to me, I feel, uh, 
I don't know, invigorated, ready to to make this whole journey a lot more fun um, than than maybe it's been lately. You know, for however dark it gets, it just means we have to find more uh, more ingenious ways to uh, break people's minds open. Yeah, that's like the creative challenge. You know, <laughs> well, it is fun. It is. it is fun. Thank you for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. This show was produced and edited by Stephen Bartolome. Thanks to all our supporters and teammates, Zago, who designed our logo and helped kickstart Team Human, Meetup for connecting people out in the real world, start your own meetup at meetup.com, Aaron Dignan at theready.com, and to listener supporters who have made contributions to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism through the website. Our show music is thanks to Fugazi and Mike Watt. My name is Stephen Bartolome, and I'm on Team Human. And I'm Douglas Rushkoff. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm, where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.